0: Hey there, folks. We are cruising up the veggie superhighway.
1: Veg-cast.
0: And that is VegCast 95.
1: Veg-cast.
0: A full menu from first to last. Veg-cast. Yes, we are back with another full menu of vegetarian and vegan podcastery. This is VegCast, and this time out... We are going to be talking about cow's milk and the problems associated therewith. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Joseph Keon, who has written a book called Whitewash, which is one of the most comprehensive discussions of the problems with dairy that uh, that I have seen. And uh, hopefully you may learn something as well as I did in this discussion. We will also have a science fact about meat and dairy and global warming and how making consumers pay more for those could actually affect the health of the planet. We also will have a music track by an old VegCast fave that I felt like we hadn't heard enough of recently, so we called them back into service. It's the Quinn Band, have a, a new track to, from them, a new track to us anyway. Uh, so that will be coming up. All that, in fact, will be coming up. So, of course, as always, I invite you to sit back and relax and crank up your MP3 playing device as we deliver to you this vegetarian superhighway edition of VegCat. All right now, VegCast95 is brought to you by Light Life, makers of smart Dog, smart ground, and more. Visit them at lightlife.com. Veggie goodness for you and the planet. You see, very relevant to today's show, uh, which has to do with uh, meat and dairy and uh, the deleterious effects thereof. And we're going to start off specifically with dairy. And there have been uh, books written about the problems with dairy One of the more notorious, if you will, was entitled Milk the Deadly Poison by Robert Cohen. Uh, We don't have Robert on, but we do have Dr. Joseph Keon, who has a book from New Society Press that... uh, actually makes many of the same points, but uh, is very thoroughly documented and footnoted uh, in a way that it makes it hard to ignore some of the facts that are being presented there. So we're going to move right now into that interview with Joseph Keon. Okay, right now on VegCast, we are joined by phone by Joseph Keon, the author of Whitewash. Uh, Dr. Keon, thanks for joining us on VegCast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, your book, Whitewash, is uh, about milk, and uh, the subtitle, of course, is The Disturbing Truth About Cow's Milk and Your Health, and that's a pretty provocative uh, subtitle there. It's not uh, the most provocative title or subtitle that we've ever seen in a an anti-dairy book, but uh, first of all, uh, you are... Uh, a, a nutrition expert, you're a doctor, uh, you have a doctorate in, uh, in nutrition, is that right? That's right, yeah. And so what what made you say, you know, I gotta write a whole book devoted just to the problems with milk?
2: So um, I wrote a book about breast cancer, The Truth About Breast Cancer, and I, a lot of women were asking about the role of hormone replacement therapy uh, in, in increasing the risk of that disease. And it turned out that many of them were taking the hormones uh, in hopes of staving off osteoporosis or bone fracture so I looked into the disease and was just stunned by the information uh, that was available if you looked into the scientific literature and it snowballed from there and I ended up writing the book whitewash
0: okay one of the uh, the interesting things about this when I got the book by a uh, kind of knee-jerk uh, reflex. I looked at the bio and I say, oh, he's Dr. Keon. Is he a real doctor? And then when I read the bio, I was like, oh, right, he's not a real doctor. He actually knows something about nutrition. And um, uh, as you know, there, and as you point out in, in, in the book, there is a problem with medical doctors uh, dispensing a lot of uh, nutrition advice, including uh, telling patients they gotta drink milk for healthy bones and all that uh, when they, they get precious little uh, nutrition education. And I, I just wanted to ask you: Is that is something that, uh, as somebody that is trying to get actual facts about nutrition out there, do you do you find yourself running up and kind of butting heads uh, against that whole phenomenon? Well,
2: Certainly, people often do look for an M.D. uh, uh, to to give them confidence about uh, dietary or other health information, but as you pointed out, ironically enough, uh, most physicians in this country in particular are not qualified to speak about nutrition because they receive so little education uh, in the subject. And and the problem, of course, is that most of the chronic diseases, osteoporosis included, are caused by dietary choices uh, primarily. So the people we confide in uh, to get this information are probably least qualified to give us the answers we need.
0: Right. And you were, um, you've were you talked about, um, you start off your book with a little anecdote about uh, kind of running up against bias in the mainstream media uh, in favor of milk or just basically in favor of the default assumption that uh, milk is good and wholesome and anybody who's uh trying to argue against it is is dangerous so i, I just wondered as, have there been as you've been uh, preparing this and getting uh some of the message out that was in this book and some of the you know content related to dairy in uh, your previous books ha- have you you know had problems with that and how have you dealt with that
2: I think there is there is enormous resistance to hearing some of the uh, uh, information that's in whitewash because we've all grown up from a very young age hearing the same message. We've all been indoctrinated into this, this idea, this thinking that uh, the milk of a cow is not only um, helpful and wholesome for human beings, but that it's essential if we're going to build and maintain strong bones. So uh, in some cases... I have come up across the kind of response that could be framed as, I wouldn't believe it even if it was true. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's because, it, of course, it is something that we've come to know with such certainty in our minds and hearts that this is the right thing to do, the helpful thing to do, that this is about uh, good parenting and nurturance. But uh, when you look into the scientific literature carefully, you see that, There's really a dearth of studies that are available that actually back up the claim that we've been hearing now for some 70 years. Not only that we need it, but that it actually will protect us from bone fracture. When you look around the world, you see a very consistent trend, and that's that the uh, communities that consume the most milk have the highest risk of bone fracture, and the inverse is so. So those who consume little or no milk seem to have the most protection against
0: fracturing a bone. Right, and I should point out, you mentioned all the scientific literature, and uh, one of the assets of the book is uh, you have, it's extensively noted and footnoted, and uh, uh, you have resources in the back and so forth, uh, so that, you know, people who may come across it and say, what, this is crazy talk, you'd, you're constantly um, backing that up. And you do go into uh, one of the problems, and there are, as you point out, there are myriad Uh, problems with the production of milk, uh, in uh, at least in in North America, and uh, one of them is the prevalence of antibiotic use, Uh, and you go over that uh, pretty extensively, and that's right now kind of in the headlines as uh, the FDA is trying to uh, ramp up its testing of uh, specifically dairy producers who have already been uh, caught with cows that uh, have... to more than the legal limit of antibiotics, as well as, I was surprised by this, uh, cows that have drugs that are not allowed to be used in cows. Um, And so the the dairy producers are now saying, no, you can't even test us, even though, (laughs) uh, you know, (laughs) we've already uh, had this infraction. You can't even test us because it would just, it would be too inconvenient for us. Um, And I just wondered what were your your thoughts on this whole uh, development and how it might turn out.
2: Well, the, the dairy industry's response to the FDA is disturbing because, in essence, they're saying uh, we don't want to be tested. We, w- we don't want to be held accountable for any standard with regard to antibiotic residues in our products in the milk. And this is something that has been a problem for decades. And although there have been uh, concerns raised and there have been efforts on uh, the part of various experts to to uh, bring this to uh, the attention of the public and and have more open discourse about it. Um, the, the problem really has not changed much over the years. In fact, according to the government's uh, accountability office, the GAO, they say the FDA has approved over 80 different antibiotics to use in Americans' farms uh, on animals, and um, 30 of those alone are just approved for use in dairy cows. So the possibility that one is going to have antibiotic residues in their milk remains very high. With some estimates, you have a one in two chance that the milk you pull off the shelf is going to have some antibiotic residue in it. But um, it's, there are a number of concerns. Of course, the biggest one being uh, antibiotic uh, drug resistance in humans. We're seeing this uh, at alarming rates, the number of drugs that are proving useless that only a decade ago were the best thing we had to combat a particular illness. And there are many, many experts worldwide who are pointing the finger at the, uh, the chronic use of uh, subtherapeutic—that that is giving drugs to healthy animals uh, in, in, in our farming. And um, so when you have animals that are developing this resistance to these drugs, they can pass that resistance on. Uh, by by being in contact with them, handling food products from them. Um, and uh, so it's something, it's something very serious and that we have to pay attention to. And, and I'm, again, really alarmed by the resistance to have any oversight uh, about the use of these drugs.
0: Right. I, and just uh, to pick up on uh, some of your, your critique of the way the mainstream media handles this, I mean, the New York Times story, I, I noticed, first of all, cast it, almost as this uh, he said, she said, which they, they tend to do anyway, but then immediately went to uh, a quote from the dairy producers rather than uh, from food safety experts uh, to to make it into, you know, the main story was about how much of a problem this was going to be for dairy producers and how it might, you know, be bad for the environment because they'd be dumping their milk all over the place rather than change the their level of antibiotic use. But um, also I, di- I didn't really... Uh, I don't recall seeing anything about the bacteria developing resistance to antibiotics in this. It all seemed to be focused on whether uh, humans were going to be consuming. And, of course, that would be another uh, potential route where, where that could have the effect. But it was focusing strictly on that rather than just the overwhelming amount uh, that was, you know, that's going on in the industry. And I I got asked, do you see any, <laughs> any hope for... Uh, for that changing in the future?
2: Well, it's it's an overwhelming task at best. I'll tell you there are 145,000 dairy farms in America. If you were to test just 50% of them that would require the FDA to inspect 1,394 farms a week. That's a challenge that's close to impossible when you really think about that. And they're, they're not going to uh, put the people and the resources to doing something like that. What we really have to do is... Um, try and get the uh, people who are, the dairy farmers who are uh, using these drugs to come into compliance, first of all, because there are, there are requirements uh, uh, about uh, when these drugs can be used, the types of drugs that can be used, and when the drug administration has to be cut back. Otherwise, you can't use the milk. But as we're finding still when you test uh, these animals, uh, the residues are still there, uh, even at the time that they're being slaughtered. The residues are showing up in the mill. It's an enormous issue that we have to contend with, and it's, I think it's going to take much more stringent oversight by the FDA to the degree that they can do it, because, again, it's an enormous task.
0: Right. Um, well, let me just uh, move to uh, talk about a happier <laughs> subject. And I know, uh, you know, I call this VegCast, the vegetarian podcast. I know there are vegetarians listening to it. Uh, even though I'm constantly talking about veganism, and they may be saying now, okay, well, if milk is so bad, what can we eat? We got to get our calcium. What, what can we do? And what, uh, you know, when you get that reaction from people, what's the, <laughs> what's what's the kind of the uh, nut graph for for what you give them?
2: Well, the most important thing that people need to understand is we need far less calcium than we've been told. These recommendations of 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams uh, of calcium a day are highly inflated. And when you look around the world, you don't find that recommendation being made. The United States uh, really is uh, alone in that. Um, You see recommendations of anywhere between 500 and 700 uh, milligrams a day. Um, There's good research. The World Health Organization maintains that 500 milligrams of calcium a day is sufficient stave off uh, bone disease. Now, as far as getting that calcium, there are so many different wonderful sources. There are over 70 different foods that contain uh, quality calcium, Uh, whether that be uh, sunflower seeds or sweet potatoes or sweet chard or figs or cornbread or blackstrap molasses or broccoli, Brussels sprouts. Um, The leafy green vegetables are really some of the best sources to get calcium. Many of the fruits and vegetables uh, contain all the, the support nutrients because of course bone isn't built or maintained just because of the presence of calcium. You need all of the other micronutrients that support uh, the bone uh, structure. So I always tell people the best way to get all of the vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants, and of course calcium is, is from the plant kingdom. Uh, and that's because these foods have the support nutrients they don't have many of the uh, concerns. For example, every glass of milk has 59 hormones and growth factors in it. That's whether it's organically produced or not. Those are there for the baby cow to grow it rapidly. Um, So it's nice to be able to avoid that, to avoid the dioxin, the rocket fuel, uh, the antibiotics, many of these other contaminants that occur in it. So another easy way uh, other than these, these whole uh, plant-based foods is some of the supplemented uh, or fortified um, uh, uh, options such as fortified orange juice. One will absorb more of the calcium in a glass of fortified orange juice than they will in a glass of milk. Uh, some of the soy milks, almond milk, oat milk, hazelnut milk, coconut milk. There's so many wonderful options now that one can use on cold cereal, hot cereal, baking, cooking, in very much the same
0: way that they may have used milk and uh, dairy products over the years. Great. All right. Well, that's uh, you know, in uh, some of those foods, we were constantly hearing about uh, in different ways and different benefits they have. It's almost like the the inverse of the milk situation, where exactly. you have one thing that has all of these different liabilities. And uh, you, sorry, you were going to say.
2: Well, as you said, there are so many of these foods. I mean, broccoli alone, there are so many substances that keep being, you know, we keep discovering about broccoli that are um, anti-carcinogenic. You know, they they stop angiogenesis, so the expansion of new uh, blood pathways to tumor tissue. And there's so many fabulous benefits to eating these foods anyway that uh, by choosing them, we're not only getting the calcium we need and uh, the nutrients to support bone health, but we're getting these other phytochemicals and sort of superstar substances that we're finding uh, provide us with other important protection.
0: Yep, all right. Well, Joseph Keon, uh, you you'd written about uh, breast cancer. You've done the whole book about milk. Uh, are you are you going to move on from there, or do you feel like, you know, this is what uh, I was really leading up to, and now I'm just going to get out there and try to, spend the rest of my time getting the word out about milk, or do you have other things in the hopper?
2: Uh, another thing in the hopper is uh, I wrote a book uh, years ago. It was based upon my doctoral dissertation. It was called Whole Health, a Guide to Wellness of Body and Mind. And it was a general wellness book, and I'm looking at putting together something like that that's really focused on children's health and some of the uh, less understood, less conventional wisdom about um, uh, uh, raising children with healthful nutrition and uh, starting them out early with uh, a strong sense of uh, value over exercise and just generally taking good care of them.
0: All right, well, we're about out of time, but uh, I want to be sure everybody knows this is Whitewash by Joseph Keon. It's from New Society Publishers, and uh, it's extensively uh, documented. If you uh, are already vegan and just want to get something that uh, you can show to somebody that uh, that has the science to to back things up, uh, it's well put together, and uh, I want to thank you for uh, for writing that, and thanks for joining us on Vegcast.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: true for eternity does your body need now?
0: That is Quinn, the Gwyn Band would Learn to Live Again. You may recall Quinn from uh, some veg casts uh why years ago now. We're looking at this. Huge uh, half-decade history of uh, VegCast. Hadn't played Quinn for a while. They're from Australia, and I encourage you to uh, go to the cho- show notes and check out that link and uh, hear more of Quinn. But in the meantime, we will be proceeding on in VegCast 95 with the science. Our science fact for VegCast 95, climate tax on meat and milk results in in less greenhouse gases. Uh, this is from Science Daily. Uh, let's read the lead, shall we? A climate tax corresponding to uh, 60 euros a ton of carbon dioxide equivalent could reduce greenhouse gas emissions from European agriculture by around 7%. In the article, uh, the researchers who are from the University of Gothenburg, Sweden. Uh, and this is an article published in the scientific journal Climatic Change. Uh, in the article, the researchers showed that reduced meat, milk, and egg consumption has two effects a direct one, which means significantly lower emissions of methane and nitrous oxide, and an indirect one through land being made available, which can be used for bioenergy cultivation. Food production is a source that cannot be disregarded when considering greenhouse gas emissions. Globally, it accounts for 20 to 25 percent of emissions. However, emissions from food are difficult. To tax, as the principal emission sources are methane from the stomachs of cows and nitrous oxide from land to which fertilizer has been applied, both these emission sources are technically complicated and very costly to measure. There is also a lack of effective technical solutions to reduce these emissions. On the other hand, Changed food habits can have a great impact. If beef is replaced by chicken, emissions decrease by 90 percent. And if beef is replaced by beans, the reduction is 99 percent. A tax on emissions from food production would normally be preferable. But as this is virtually impossible in practice and the effects of switching away from meat and milk are so great... We show that it can be far more effective to apply the tax directly to the meat and milk consumption, says Stefan Wisenius, a researcher in the Department of Energy and Environment at Chalmers. And uh, just to wrap up. Up our quote from this article Beef, which is responsible for the highest emissions per kilogram of meat, would be taxed higher under the proposal, while chicken and pork would be taxed lower as their emissions are lower. Today, we have taxes on petrol, and Science Daily reminds you that that's just crazy British talk for gasoline, and a trading scheme for industrial plants and power generation, but no policy instruments at all for food-related greenhouse gas emissions. This means that we do not pay for the climate costs of our food, says Frederick Hedemus, another researcher in the Department of Energy and Environment at Chalmers. And so I doubt that there's much more that needs to be said there. That uh, is working up to the fact they're presented at the end that we are not paying the climate cost of our food. We're also, of course, not paying... The, uh, the moral costs. Uh, we do pay a health cost, uh, but, of course, that takes a while to show up. And once it does, then a lot of uh, people in North America say, oh, gosh, maybe I'll uh, start changing now and see what I can do. Uh, and, of course, nobody likes to be the uh, cheerleader for higher taxes, but there are things that Uh, a tax can change behavior on, and that behavior definitely needs to be changed on. So it's good to have the tax proposal coming from the sector that we call the Science Fact. Okay, VegCast 95 is about to head back out onto the Veggie Super Highway, but before before we go, just a couple quick updates on VegCast94. I neglected to let you know about the upcoming Vegan Pizza Day, which was January 29th. Uh, it went off great, uh, and that was the first one. It's going to be every uh, last Saturday in January from here on, so uh, mark that on your calendar for next year, and I'll have a link in the show notes uh, to the site, as well as uh, to a piece that I wrote for our local newspaper here. Um, also, Dave White Who you may recall from VegCast 63, where he talked about the vegan waffle trend and phenomenon that he essentially... Uh, kicked off and started himself. He now has a vegan waffle cookbook. So wanted to uh, let you know that that was available. There will be a link to that as well. Um, and we have uh, some good stuff coming up. Just went over the weekend up to New York for a party, uh, CD release party for healthy food for thought CD that uh, I was involved in. And I'm going to let you know all about that next time on VegCast. But until then, we are out of here. Okay, I want to thank our sponsor, Light Life. Light Life makes eating veggie deliciously easy. Join us and be pro-veggie. And, of course, I also want to thank my guest, Dr. Joseph Keon, for talking with us about the multivarious dangers and problems associated with cow's milk. And thanks to Quinn of Quinn Band for sending us another song to play, and of course I want to thank you, the VegCast listener, for downloading and subscribing to VegCast. You can find us at iTunes. Till next time, please get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast!